0: Players Gather, to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Green Senate, Croata Hoof Behemoth, Rick, Steadfast Leader. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they are all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy
1: and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashan and Ra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com.
2: episode 33 of the eternal glory podcast your 15 best friends i'm phil gallagher joined by bryant cook and brian Koval. how are you all doing tonight
1: phil i just want to say that you are one of my 15 best friends
2: oh man now if we made that list a little, little bit smaller would i make it into like the top spaces on myspace
1: i never had a myspace i wasn't cool enough in high school wow yeah that that that's fair Well, I was all in
0: the uh, like copy and pasting code off of the internet to increase my top friends. I think I had like 32 top friends at the end of MySpace's reign. And I figured out that if I made them all bands, my friends wouldn't be mad at me. So it was just like 32 (laughs) bands that I liked.
1: How high was Silverstein on that list?
0: Uh, They were not present. Though it the one awkward twist is that most of them were local bands and I ended up friends with a lot of them. And then it became like, you know, wisdom in chains is like, yo, why is strength for a reason above us? Like, I don't know guys, come on. But they didn't actually care. It was a joke.
2: All right. So Brian, what's going on in your life?
0: Uh, Well, I went back to work today after uh, almost two weeks of being shut down. We had our first confirmed COVID in our school building and which led to our second confirmed COVID, someone from the same classroom. So we had a mandatory two-week shutdown from the point that the infected person was last in the building. So they had been out for a couple days already, being sick, waiting for test results, and then we had to like finish out the two weeks from that point. Uh, I I got tested. I came back negative. I'm good. Uh, though I did briefly run a low-grade fever for like one day, like but. That happens every time the seasons change for me, so I was like, this is weird. I'm pretty sure I don't have COVID, but I need to get tested. But I'm negative. Uh, During the shutdown, I basically played Breath of the Wild from when I woke up until when I went to bed every single day. Um, I am well over 100 hours in. uh, I've just been collecting nuts and clearing shrines and intentionally avoiding clearing the last Divine Beast because I just don't want the game to be over. And I'm currently on a self-prescribed break from the game, like uh, Sunday night. It's Tuesday right now, Sunday night. I was just like, I got to stop. And I put it down and went and did something else. And I'm intentionally not going to touch it for a few days just to get some sense of normalcy back in the real world. Uh, But mostly I haven't left my house since the last time I talked to you guys. What's up with you, Phil?
2: Um, I too have been on a gaming binge. Um, I've been playing Metroidvania games um, for anyone in the audience who's not familiar. It's games like Metroid and Castlevania. Metroidvania. So I played through Time Spinner, which is this Metroidvania that randomly has like interesting themes on sexuality and all sorts of uh, non traditional relationships, and that was really cool. And now I'm playing Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, uh, which is this like very much Castlevania-inspired game. Uh, I think the guy's name is Kojima, who was one of the primary people working on Castlevania. Konami said, we're not making more Castlevania. So he said, fuck you, I'm going to make my own Castlevania with blackjack and hookers and cat ears. And he did. Perfect. Uh, and that's been really fun. Uh, been... Been doing some Hades for the, the channel that's uh, currently taking up my Monster Train time slot because all the Switch players are just adoring Hades right now. And uh, at Bryant's suggestion, I picked up Lovecraft Country.
1: Fuck yeah! Uh,
2: going in, I, I'm i going to say I expected more Lovecraft, but what I got out of it was this really like nuanced and interesting work about race relationships. And it's really cool. So I didn't necessarily get what I wanted, but I got something that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's safe to say nothing about that show is what I expected it was going to be. And I am not mad. It it is better than what I expected it was going to be.
2: Yeah, I I went in. I'm like, all right, gothic horror. Here we go. I'm so excited. And after an episode, I'm like, man, I'm kind of disappointed. And then I understood what the show was trying to do. And I'm like, you know... This is good.
0: Definitely.
1: I think there was only one episode that I was a little low on, and it was the Haunted House one, because it felt very similar to the first season of American Horror Story. And then once I got that out of my head, I enjoyed the rest of it. But for a little bit, I was down on that episode.
2: Yeah, I'm at, I don't know, five or six episodes deep right now. And that was definitely the worst one for me so far.
0: Yeah, that that, that was the one where it just like suddenly totally snapped in tone too, right? Where yeah, we we were on we were on one adventure, and then it was just like crack whiplash. What are we doing here? And it takes like half an episode to reorient to where you are, but it's worth it. Don't don't give up.
1: Yeah, the show's great.
2: All right, Brian, what are you doing to fill your time?
1: Well, I'll be completely honest. Like Brian, I haven't really left the house. I've just been binging television shows. Uh, the old lady and I watched Woke on Hulu. It's a story of a. Uh, black cartoonist, and it's the story of him becoming woke. The guys in his early 20s, doesn't really experience or acknowledge the stuff going around him, and all of a sudden one day that changes. And it, it's a comedy, but opens up your eyes a little bit. It's definitely worth watching. Uh, other than that, Cobra Kai on Netflix, I'm. I'm behind. I'm behind the times. I know season two came out a little bit ago. I watched both seasons in two days over the weekend. I was hooked. Uh, The show's a little cringy at times for, like, teenage drama reasons, but also things they say. Like, uh, it really opens up your eyes to, like, the stuff that people used to say that is no longer acceptable. And I think that's what the show is trying to... Uh, demonstrators like you can't call somebody a pussy anymore like that doesn't translate well to 2020 and every time it happens i like i'm sort of taken aback and then i'm like i guess that's what they're like trying to show here but it always catches me a little bit off guard
0: yeah i think they did a good job of like uh like johnny who is the the bully the like blonde kid who daniel fights in the original karate kid movie like, he's the dojo leader now, if you're not familiar with the show. And he's just... The show starts with him as toxic as he was in 1985 or whatever. And he's just slowly learning that's not how you behave in, a, in the world anymore. And meanwhile, we learn that uh, the Karate Kid himself, Daniel, has become kind of bitter in old age. So, like, they both end up just below the bar of a person you actually like. Which I think is cool, because there's not a clear good guy or bad guy they both kind of suck and they're you see them both like flirting with getting better and then some stupid thing happens and toxicity takes over and then they both suck again and uh, it there's just like two anti-heroes in the show which is kind of interesting
1: yeah it's not a must-watch by any means, but I enjoyed it. And then a show that I cannot get enough of is The Boys. I don't know why like someone didn't force me to watch this sooner. It is directly up my alley. Uh, I watched the one-and-a-half seasons that were released very quickly last week, and then I needed more, so I bought all of the trade paperbacks. They're actually supposed to be delivered to my house today, uh, but the mail carrier decided that I needed to pay extra postage because of uh, media mail versus actual mail comic books slash trade paperbacks count as media mail so i will be getting those tomorrow and by the time uh the next episode airs i probably will have read all 12 trades
2: yeah i highly recommend the show um we were talking about this before we went live but it's it's definitely the sort of show show that is not holding anything back and it's just kind of one of those like bite your knuckles and it's just like oh damn they they just did that um it's very enjoyable media.
0: Yeah, I, I saw a uh, Twitter thread like uh, three episodes into this current season of uh, people I know and like who were saying like they're giving up on the show because now it's just fucked up for the sake of being fucked up. And it's not actually like producing a compelling story anymore. And I w- I've watched the six or seven episodes there's been so far and I haven't had that experience. So I wonder if I'm just dead inside. But I certainly am enjoying the show, but it, it is not for the faint of heart.
2: Yeah, there's definitely some social commentary going on as well, but it's uh, impossible to talk about that without going like real deep into spoiler territory. <laughs> yeah,
0: not going to touch it, but absolutely. Uh, if you can stomach some uh, gore and grime and adult content, uh, there there is a good story being told.
2: All right. Uh, Anything else you want to say before we start going into feedback? I'm good. All right.
1: Let's do a live.
2: I mean, that's what we do every week, so I don't think that really requires any changes. Anyway, moving on to the donations. Uh, Thank you very much to Henrik Korkutz, Rudy Summers, Evan Graveno, and Samuel Best for supporting the podcast. It is very much appreciated. Donations keep other Phil, our editor, Phil Blackman, paid and, you know, keep the podcast edited.
0: That is true. Uh, So feedback, uh, first item of feedback uh, we're going to talk about. uh, Phil and I spent like five minutes last time talking about like Trump's patriotic education speech uh, as educators. It's something that concerned us. And there was some pushback, like stop using your platform for Political stuff, just shut up, talk about magic. And uh, so I I felt out the community. I posted a Twitter poll. Uh, 60% of people like and actively expect side tangents out of a podcast. 25% are indifferent. 11% wanted us to just shut up and stick to magic. And the remaining 4% just don't listen to podcasts and have no thoughts. So that's an 85% uh, of people who are into it or at least don't care. And for, for me, and I, I believe I speak for my co-host too, uh, podcasts are about the human interaction. Like, you can read an article or just pour over deck decklist if you just want to know about Legacy. But we are three humans, and we're here to talk. And hopefully our banter and real-world uh, thoughts are worth more than just, you know, sitting down with yourself and pouring over deck lists. Like decklist. Like, we're, we're here to hang out, and Legacy is the backdrop. Like, that's how I feel about podcasts in general.
2: Yeah, we're, we're real people with genuine concerns about things that are happening in the world right now. So, like, we want to be empathetic humans. We want to talk about the things that are influencing our world, um, especially as an American audience right now, or as American podcasters right now, I guess. Like, there's some really spooky stuff going on that I don't really want to delve into tonight because I will just be sad and angry i don't i don't think i have it in me tonight (laughs) not after every all the other like magic related drama and things that are going on right now but like from time to time we need to talk about that stuff and this is one of our few times to actually get some quote-unquote real social interaction with friends
0: yeah and the the one time we really jumped into like politics for a big chunk we warned you at the beginning of the show it was going to happen later. We warned you at the beginning of the section that's what's happening now. Last week, it was just like part of our intro. We just talked about video games and TV. Like, if you want us to shut up and talk about magic, you should complain about that, too. Or at least, at least be honest that it's the political views you have a problem with. So, that we're, we're just going to keep doing what we do. We're going to use this section to talk about organically whatever we want to talk about. And it is what it is. Uh, some people suggested timestamps uh we're not going to do that we have an intro at the beginning we're going (laughs) to warn you if there's anything substantial coming your way but uh in general our intro is our intro (laughs) you can fast forward if you don't want to hear us talk about anything else there is legacy content forthcoming every week i promise yeah
1: couldn't agree more brian
2: all right i'm gonna i'm gonna end that section by putting on my i
0: voted by mail sticker oh you got a sticker and uh Yeah, Yeah, I I didn't get a sticker.
2: Check it out. It's super sexy. Mm.
0: Does that come in your ballot? Or do do they say it back? Yeah, it sure does. Oh, Pennsylvania didn't do that. I also voted last week, but I didn't get a sticker.
1: Yeah, Fuck New York.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Remember, if you want to make a change in the world,
2: make sure you elect people who will give you stickers when you vote by mail.
0: That's our big political takeaway for today. Yeah. Uh, Thale lives in the best state of the three of us, evidently.
1: So we do have one bit of real feedback, by the way. All right, I guess I'll take this. I appreciated Brian's point on Massacre slash Dread of Night. I think what I'm most excited about with Skyclave Apparition and Death and Taxes is being able to sideboard into Hate City for unfair matchups. And it makes total sense to me that a Dread of Night Massacre sideboard strategy is less effective against that. This is from Method Belly on Reddit.
2: Yeah. Um, so most of my DNT sideboards that I'm mucking around with right now are at approximately 11 cards for combo. Uh, 13 if you count Path to Exile as a card for combo against the Merit Lodge decks. That's kind of loose, but the, the point is DNT has a higher density of hate cards that can be dedicated to combo, uh, almost none of which are creatures right now. Um, many of my sideboards are playing around with Sanctum Prelate, but I think that's the only creature I'm playing in my sideboard right now. And that means that Massacre just isn't getting everything anymore. We're past the days where the only hate cards you're playing are like Containment Priests and Sworn Canonists and such. Now there's Mind Break traps and Surgicals and Deafening Silence that Massacre doesn't beat. Also, randomly, sometimes the hate bears aren't getting killed by Massacre anymore because uh, Luminarch Aspirin is putting plus one, plus one counters on them and they live through hate that you would normally expect to kill them.
0: Oh, Luminarch Aspirin is real. <laughs> like, uh, I, I know we're talking about your sideboard right now, but since you mentioned it, I recorded a league with Rug Delver last week. It's on my YouTube and I played against Death and Taxes and I let Luminarch aspirant resolve and i was like i have three turns to find a bolt or i lose like i'm not going to burn a force on this i don't think it's that important but i am going to need to aggressively cantrip to find the bolt in the next two turns or i'm dead and i found it right on time and won the match but it was scary like it was an immediate answer this or die it felt like monastery mentor honestly
2: yeah, Reddit has been shitting on me about my opinions on that card. Like I'm convinced that card is very, very good. And everyone's on Reddit is like, it doesn't solve any problems. It doesn't do anything for DNT.
0: I haven't played with the card, but I know that it's bad. It's a real clock, <laughs> which is one of DNT's biggest problems.
2: And I'm I'm sitting here on like league number eight or nine of playing with the card, and the hundred people who are watching me play are all like, damn, I didn't think that card would be good, but like look what it's doing.
1: Yep. We might have talked about this in the last episode, but uh, Death and Taxes being able to play 11 cards for combo, this goes back to Owen Turtenwald with True Name Nemesis, and we discussed this on a previous episode, it might have been the last one, with True Name making your fair matchup so good, which is what Skyflave Aspirant does, uh, is that you have all these open slots in the board now, Owen used them for meddling mages, Death and Taxes is using them for Deafening Silence and Mind Breaks and other trash cards. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and
0: isn't it lucky that our topic this week is sideboards and how to construct them? In, ca- Ooh, in case that it? wasn't clear by your 15 best friends, that's what we're talking about.
1: The 15 cards in your sideboards. Oh, sideboard. I used one of mine on Phil. Does that mean I lose a sideboard slot? Uh,
0: yes. It, I guess technically it would be your up to 15 best friends. So you can burn a sideboard slot on Phil if you want.
1: All right, I'll your keep deck you is still legal. are worth it. <laughs>
2: that's good. Alright, uh, one random nugget for the other d listeners out there. Please consider testing Sword of Feast and Famine. Card has overperformed for me. Protection from black and green is getting you through Elks, it's getting you through Plague Engineer, it's getting you through uh, Uro, and it's giving you protection from Oko. Uh, it has been very good for me in testing.
0: You know, Whiteface has posted a uh, uh, Sharkblade list. Oh, uh... Like, probably about a month ago at this point. Like, it's not new, but the weapon package included sort of feast and famine over the other options, and on paper I was like, well, that's weird, but I I just assume everything he's doing is correct, because he's very smart.
2: Alright, uh, on to MTG updates, I think? Do it. Alright, um, I'll start. Man, it is hard watching my friends quit Legacy. (laughs) um this week uh Eli going's goblin lackey one uh sold out all his stuff on magic Online, oh, no. and stopped producing like patreon content and is, and is gonna stop streaming and uh Callum whitefaces Smith also sold his paper collection this week
0: mm-hmm. we were just talking about and him that's that's two big brands <laughs> of the legacy community gone
2: it's it's rough like I just watch them fall
0: yeah it it's weird, like, in general, like, Legacy and Magic. Like, a number of my friends I see selling out right now, and, like, it, it just makes you fully appreciate how important the Gathering is to Magic. Like, that, you could get into Magic Online for the cost of, like, one or two paper Legacy decks, and they're just not doing that because they don't want Magic. They want the Gathering. And the farther away we get from the Gathering, we're, like, seven months in from not gathering at this point and people are just like why do i own these expensive things ship them that like steady drip of reinforcement for maintaining a collection is just not present and i i know a number of them uh, like one of my best friends is uh quite uh capricious <laughs> in his whims and he has sold out of magic and bought back in several times uh in the last couple of years just based on how often he's playing or not and i think he'll be back once we're hanging out again but yeah uh, a lot of the people are not going to have the finances to be able to get back in once they're out and it is tough watching the watching them all drop
1: so part of it is with covid some people have been load or some people are still without work 7 months later and when you, you know start missing bills, sometimes your Magic collection is something that gets you by for a month, and that also happens in the game. I'm not saying that this is the case for those two individuals, but it certainly happened to a lot of people, if they're named figures in the community or not. Uh, it's Something that I've seen in general across Magic Online is that the number of people in the leagues, you'll notice are just down. And that could be, hey, I missed the Gathering. Or it could just be like, hey, I need to sell my stuff in order to get by.
0: Yeah, that's a big one, too. Uh, A friend of mine, Michael Caffrey, he owns Tales of Adventure. He tweets like MTG Finance thoughts uh, regularly. And one of his thoughts uh, the other day was that Ultimate Masters boxes seem to be resurfacing on the market lately. And that felt to me like a huge response to uh, COVID money squeeze. Like, if you've been sitting on uh, sealed product for a while, uh, it's time to cash that in, I guess. Like, you're going to miss that less than uh, you will your actual legacy deck. Like, you, you only hold on to sealed product as a future investment. And a lot of people seem to be cashing in on that sort of thing.
2: That stuff aside, on the magic end, um, I've been testing bad DNT ideas so other people don't have to. Most recently, I tested out Legion Angel, which is a 4 3 flyer for 4 mana. And when it enters the battlefield, you can get one of them from outside of the game. So usually that means from your sideboard, although I believe it can also pull them from
0: Exile. Uh, No. Uh, Exile is a game zone now. That worked before Exile was a game zone. When removed from the Uh, game was the
1: terminology. Phil, this happened in M10. Uh, please keep up. I've been hating this rule change for almost a decade now.
0: <laughs> yeah, Bryant is acutely aware because he can't Burning Wish for his old Burning Wishes anymore. Yeah, I, I didn't remember
2: the exact wording of the card. I played with it once. Uh, anyway, so I, I played the card expecting it to be Absolute doo and to hate it. But the two times that I resolved it, just chaining three of those things or four of those things together produced very dominating board states that were really strong. So the card falls into the category of this isn't a meme, but it's not great. So maybe it's playable, but it eats up sideboard slots. So maybe we'll come back to
1: that a little bit later. To jump ahead for a little bit into my section, I played Snow in a Legacy Challenge and I faced a list with the Legion Angel in it, it was really good. It definitely like burned some resources. I ended up winning the match by the skin of my teeth, but it was an issue. i uh, thought I did have while facing it was it would honestly be better as a 3-4 rather than a 4-3 because then it could block Delvers all day long. You could stall out board states. It, blo- it would block Elks then.
2: I would also take it at an X2 so that I could find it with Recruiter.
0: Yeah, if you could recruit card for a Court dirty. of Angels, that would be insane. I was thinking that when you were talking to, And to Brian's point, I'm sure that uh, R&D spent a lot of time on exactly that number and they were like, is this too good if you can't bolt it in uh, Modern or Pioneer or whatever? So, uh, the thing you said is absolutely correct and I don't think it's an accident.
2: Also, just throwing it out there. The card is fucking disgusting with Sword of Feast and Famine. Play one, attack, untap, play another. Nasty. <laughs> I, I made three of them in one turn cycle. Once. Wow,
0: that's like Splinter Twin.
2: It, it was nice. All right. Um. So, Bryant, I know you made a purchase recently.
1: I did. So I'd like to start out by saying you can call me a bad person if you want. I don't
2: care. You're a bad person. Uh, I...
1: Pr- yeah, I'm, yeah, I'll I get in this. on that. I purchased a secret layer from Wizards of the Coast uh, for the Walking Dead secret layer. I'm a huge Walking Dead fan. I don't talk about it a lot on the podcast, but I own every single single issue other than four. I don't own one, two, three, or nineteen. Uh, 19's the first issue of Michonne, and the others are just worth way too much money. And I've watched the show. I've read all the comics. I have a bunch of random crap. Uh, I like The Walking Dead, so I figured it'd be cool to buy this. I haven't decided if I'm going to keep it sealed yet or try to get all the cards signed by the artists and then the people in the show. I think that would be pretty cool. But I just want this for the sake of owning it. I think that it's pretty cool. And I never buy this stuff. Like, Wizards doesn't usually get my money. If it's not Japanese or foil and goes into some sort of Storm deck, I don't want it. But Wizards found a way to get me to spend money, which I haven't done that on anything else in a very long time. Um, some people were complaining that like the secret layer stuff being direct is an issue because like the secondary market doesn't get to capitalize. Well, the secondary market got to capitalize on the fetch land ones. Right. And then like they kind of ruined their chance in my opinion, because like the MSRP on those was very low. And then the secondary market was like, well, you're getting five fetch lands. Misty rainforest are worth this much. And scalding turns are worth this much. And before you knew it, that secret layer fetch land thing was like $300, like nor even near the msrp so fuck the secondary market like you don't get to do that to people if you're buying it for 50 bucks you don't get to sell it for 300 then complain later um that's at least yeah i mean
0: like the the from the vault series that they don't do anymore that was created as uh a, a layup for lgs's it's like msrp 35 dollars or whatever but like the single value alone in it all of those was like between one and 300 plus they were limited prints of this collectability and like they're specifically not making secret lair the same thing as from the vault and uh aaron forsyth was uh on some uh live stream earlier this week or last week and he basically said this model this idea does not work in any other format except direct from us
1: yeah so i did that uh I've been transferring old tournament reports from MTG The Source to TheEpicStorm.com. Honestly, I'm a little embarrassed of some of the stuff I wrote. Like, 15-year-old Bryant to 17-year-old Bryant wrote a lot of cringy shit. And I've definitely removed some of that from the reports before I transferred them over. I've cleaned up the writing a little bit, but for the most part, the guts are the same. I just removed some language, uh, added in some card links, that sort of thing. And I'm slowly doing that because I've come to realize that like MTG the source isn't going to be around forever, but I can control how long that information lives if it's on the epicstorm.com. So who knows? Like MTG the source could be gone in a year and a half after the domain runs out or whatever. Like no one uses that site anymore, so I might as well get the information I want from it and then transfer that over. Um, yeah.
2: So yeah. By a similar token, a lot of the conversation that has moved to Discord now, like those discords are randomly going to end up getting, like, phased out, forgotten. There's going to be a lot of lost magic information in those things.
1: For sure. And then uh, my last bullet point here is that I top forward a challenge with snow with a Celestial Purge. Uh, it came up for me once in the event. Ended up uh, hitting a, a Clothis, which was nice. I mean, I was in a pretty good board state already, but it just I didn't have to deal with that. I did manage to win a game through a Clothis because my opponent uh, took like 15 minutes to get win game one. They were on Pokepile. And then the game two, I had Earl Oko. My Earls ended up getting surgical. Then I was just on Oko versus, versus Clothis. And on their last possible turn, if they had maybe five more seconds, they could have selected with their Clothis and then swing with an elk for exactly lethal. But instead, they timed out. Uh, in paper, I probably would have lost that match. Or it would have been a draw, but online you happen to win though. so... um Purge was certainly worth it to me. And then Nathan Stewart played the same exact list in the Showcase Challenge and got 10th. So, the Snow list I played was pretty good. I probably want to play it again, though, to be honest. I just thought that, like, playing Rugged Over the week before and then playing Snow, the difference in power level was pretty clear to me. And if you're playing to win at this point, there's no reason why you wouldn't play Rugged Over. It's just by far the best deck in the format, and... Playing all of these ducks week after week definitely reinforced that for me. Yeah,
0: when Bryant messaged our chat asking to borrow four arrows from one of us, uh, my response was, are you sick of winning challenges? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he did manage the top four anyway. But uh, like he said, uh, I've played, uh, like, I, I've cranked out, I think, like, between 10 and 15 videos in the last month for my YouTube. Every single one of them is with a different deck. And you're working too hard if you're playing Snowco. Like, that deck. Like, Rugged Elver just hits harder, hits faster. It's easier to play. Like, nah. Also, I think is more consistent. Yeah, for sure. Like, I I, I, I am not interested in Snow right now, and that's exactly my kind of deck, so.
1: One thing that I thought while playing the deck was, I kind of thought that you had a little bit more urgency over what happened in the games with Rugged Elver you get to carefully select yes or no to everything with snow shit just happens and you're like i guess i'll answer this in a few turns yep. hopefully i'll draw well like that is not at all the same as playing rug like there's a lot of i hope i find my answer to this i hope that doesn't resolve it was a very different game
0: yeah th- there's a very like uh miracles or like blue white or like stone blade kind of vibe to it where it's like I'm going to have to beat a lot of things on board cuz you just don't have like Days and Force and Pierce. Like you you have
1: force and negation. Right,
0: yeah, it, it's just more about playing to the board.
1: And when
2: you're ba- and when your cards are bad, they're really bad. Like when you get played paired against combo and your hand is like astrolabe, astrolabe, ice fang, Kuanal, a couple lands,
0: and uro uh, and you're like wow, this hand's gas and then you just die. <laughs> yep. So, Brian, you
2: mentioned you were recording some videos. Uh,
0: Yeah, I've been on a spree. Um, Because I was working from home last week, I knew I would be doing very little for my actual job. So I set a goal for myself to record a video every day, every work day. And then I ended up recording two one day and then uh, another one yesterday. So uh, I have produced seven videos in the last seven days. Uh, four legacy, one vintage, one modern, and I busted a box of set boosters, which is one of the new things with Zendikar Rising, and that's actually kind of fun. Like I am exactly the target for a set booster, so that's what I've been up to. And for what it's worth, Bryant, I also purchased a Walking Dead Secret Lair. Uh,
1: oh, you're a bad person too. I,
0: I don't. So I I firmly believe those cards should be silver border. But beyond that, I, I don't care about any of the rest of that. Like the if these do turn out to be legacy playable, if like uh Rick Grimes Human Tribal turns out to be a tier one legacy deck, this is gonna be a mistake. But other than that, I I think the crossover is pretty cool. I look forward to other crossovers. I bought the Godzilla lands over the summer. Like I, I like that kind of thing. Fucking sue me. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, is what it is.
1: Yeah, I thought the Godzilla lands were beautiful. For what it's worth, it's just like I don't use that stuff. Yeah, I don't
0: either. These are all like I'm. If I was like I've found myself fading into more of a collector, less of a utilitarian uh, magic owner. Like I have a lot of sealed product that I've amassed over the past like two and a half years, uh, including a number of secret layers. Like I, I think I. Got one for Christmas, and then I bought a couple, and then I bought like the summer drop that had like all five in it last year with like the the tattoo art and the the robots and whatever, like came with a fetch land. Like, I I just have all that sealed in a box. I don't know what I'm gonna do with it, but I have it.
2: I do enjoy the uh, the Mecha Godzilla Crystal and Giant. Every time I stream with that card for the memes, I uh, I use that art,
0: yeah. Uh, on Arena, which is where I did almost all of my Ikoria playing. Uh, When you joined a draft, you got a Godzilla alt art style, and the style applies to all your copies of the card, so it's not like Magic Online or Real Life where you need to acquire four. So, like, I drafted the shit out of that set in the first week. All of my cards that could be Godzilla's just were. I honestly don't even know if I would recognize most of the cards if they were not Godzilla.
1: I have a friend that used to play a lot especially modern in the early days and then has slowly gotten out of magic found out that there was godzilla cards instantly became interested but i know that this person likes silly things i told them that there was a godzilla death corona and they were like i need to own one like i just can't go on without owning one of these and i was like i think they're like seven dollars on tcg player and they immediately went and bought. yeah i have a uh
0: death corona a foil death corona and a misprinted death corona misprinted foil death corona like i i kind of went ham on like seeing the like again this is me just fading into being a collector and less of a well not less of a player but in addition to a player also being a collector is like this is a one print run thing it's a weird crossover like this is something i probably want to own so i i have those
1: i wanted to ask you i can't think of the name of it and it's a little pervy but do you own, like, the foil goblin from Onslaught that has a penis if it's foil, but if it's non-foil, it doesn't? No, I don't what? even know
0: what that is. This is new to me.
1: Uh, I'm trying to think of the name. It's like Ember something. It's a real thing. Ember Dick Goblin? Is that the card? <laughs> it's like a three and a red for a two-two. Uh... Oh, I was so close when I Googled it. I typed in Goblin Ember Onslaught, and there was the first thing that came up. Ember Mage Goblin.
0: Hold up. Yeah, we're all just pulling up Scryfall right now. Okay, so is it just like dangling out the bottom of his loincloth if it's foil?
1: How does this work? Yeah. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yep.
1: Since we're on the topic of like random oddities, like I remember seeing this as a kid and people just like mass buying them. Like the traders in my area were like, how many do you own? I have five. You, will you trade any of yours? I'm trying to get two play sets.
0: Uh I'm trying to pull up foil art of it and I I just googled it. Yeah, that. I I have it up. I I don't see the the D. But all right. It's there. Oh wait. I do yeah, see but... it. It's it's I assumed it was like foil related, but it's straight up just like part of the art. Yep. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, it, it looks like a, a parsnip. It's different in the non foil. Yeah, it's that just entire, like, painted piece of the art does not exist in the non foil. Awkward. Uh, I, I do remember as a child uh, laughing at all of the uh, Robert Bliss art. Uh, basically, every magic art he did has some sort of, like, dangly, wiggly thing going on. And a number of them are in unfortunate positions. I think uh Nkundu Cyclops is the the most offensive. It's like leaping into the air completely nude and it has like a wiggly little D.
1: Yeah, that is pretty weird. I'm looking at it now.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's on the floor. What did you do? Yeah, I'm glad we though? went way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> Reddit's gonna be mad at us.
1: Oh well. Oh, they did uh reanimate. That's actually a pretty difficult signature to get. Like signed reanimates go for a bunch.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I'm pretty sure Enkundu Cyclops was a self-portrait, and Robert Bliss lives nude in the woods. That's why it's so hard to get that <laughs> signature. And he signs it with his wiggly appendages. So, oh. alright, can we get back on topic, Bryant? <laughs> Quit derailing us here. Capping <laughs> off Such this a conversation, person. I have four copies
2: of Rick on Magic Online now. Bryant. You're welcome. Brian sent me a message. It was like, Phil, ASAP, log into Magic Online. Ricks are $1 on GoatSpots. In the time that it took me to pull up Magic Online, which is clicking, typing in my credentials, rebooting Magic Online because I have to download an update, and then booting up Magic Online again, they had gone up to $3. And by the time I had finished mine, they had gone up to $4. And about one minute later, they were sold out. So card is going wild on Magic Online. Someone 5-0'd with Rick already in a
0: human's list. uh, Yes, Pro Tour champion Greg Orange did it. Uh, He he not only had Rick, I looked at his screenshot, I mean his his list hasn't dropped yet, but I saw Michonne in play and Daryl in the graveyard. So I assume
1: just the whole pile's in there. They're all humans. I don't think that these cards are going to end up being uh, an issue, by the way. Like, glenn and rick have some potential to be playable i don't think it's going to be like if you don't own the walking dead you can't play legacy no, not even
0: close like
1: people in the leaving legacy facebook group are like might as well quit and sell my collection now magic sold out hate rick yeah so uh,
0: imagine like having an underground sea in your deck and being like i can't get the rick grimes promo card <laughs> yes you can
1: Uh, Legacy players are ridiculous. But I love you all. All of them? Mm, I love most of you. Great community. Community at large.
2: Actually, maybe all of our listeners are okay.
0: Yes, each and every one of you is wonderful. Stick around for more Walking Dead memes and jokes. (laughs) Alright, so like (laughs) fucking sideboarding. (laughs) Wait, I have one more Walking Dead thing I want to talk about. How bad is Daryl against Caracas? Because Daryl gives your opponent three zombies when he arrives. And then whenever a zombie dies, you draw a card.
1: Maybe that's what you want to be doing, though, is like you're like, I wanna play like group hug and commander. I wanna give all my friends zombies to attack my enemy. I'm talking Hold about on,
0: legacy. If... This is a legacy podcast, Bryant.
2: What if what if we talk about vintage and uh you, you play it with uh the green enchantment? Shit, uh Forbidden Orchard and oh yeah, uh, an oath you you oath into Daryl so
0: <laughs> yeah you, you oath into Daryl and give them three zombies.
1: <laughs> good sounds good delightful. plan. And then your next oath hits Gristlebrand finally. yeah.
0: Now that your oath is definitely
1: going to trigger because they have so
0: many zombies. And if they try to reduce their own zombies by attacking, you draw a card.
1: It's crazy, but like oath doesn't even play like swan song anymore. It's just orchard and Oko's. like.
0: Yeah, you don't, don't need know. anything That's else. That's not what
1: this podcast is about.
0: <laughs> Alright.
1: Let's talk about sideboarding. What do we think? If what we do we have think? To. I don't like doing it. I don't think my opponent should either. Just all game ones,
0: mono game ones.
2: Then we'd be Arena.
0: I would play the Epic Storm if Magic was only game ones. I would also play the Epic Storm. If Magic was I wouldn't have to face ones. any
1: Null Rods or Mind Break Traps or deafening Silences. Honestly, I might
0: pick Dredge over the Epic Storm if we were in pure game one world. But that, wait, does does everyone else know that we're in game one world too? Or is it just me? I think it's unreal. okay. Then it's pretty easy to hate Dredge in your main deck if you want to. All right, I'm off it. Yeah, I'll play the t- Epic Storm. T- rest
1: in peace or something?
0: Okay. All right, so fundamental basics
2: of sideboarding. Um, Why don't we start by talking about Rug Delver, because in many ways, its sideboard is pretty.
0: Yeah, that is the quintessential turn some of your worst cards into better ones sideboard. Uh, Rug Delver sideboards tend to be like 15 different cards that all have marginal overlapping utility. Uh, It's kind of a thing of beauty. So like, they're not trying to beat anything specifically. They're trying to beat everything reasonably. And so you end up with, like, A Braid and Ancient Grudge. Like, so, like, or, like, Blazing Volley overlaps a little bit with A Braid, which overlaps a little bit with Ancient Grudge. And then you have, like, Red Elemental Blast, which overlaps a little bit with Flusterstorm, which, and and then, like, it's just all, like, little bits and pieces. You're not going to crush anything, but you're not going to just die to anything either.
1: So sometimes these rugged Elver, uh sideboards do have like a one of no rod or a one of winter orb, and that's because they're powerful. They can still come in in a variety of matchups. But when you have the blue cantrip cartel between preordain, brainstorm, ponder, you can find these powerful one ofs. Or if you don't need powerful one ofs, you just find your slightly improved cards like the red elemental blast, the ancient grudge, the abrades. Like you're able to find these cards that. Can sometimes be high impact or just upgrades over lightning bolt.
0: Right, and and upgrading over lightning bolt is uh, an important point because the rug delver deck it is not full of dead cards. Like it's not like like lightning bolt being your removal spell can always go to the dome. So it, you're it's not like uh, a control mirror where it's like I got to get these sorts of plowshares out of the deck. They're doing nothing for me. Like it every card is fine and you can turn them all into fine plus.
1: And sometimes you hear uh, Delver sideboarding strategies that make you raise an eyebrow sometimes. Like, back in the Death Rate era, Delver used to sideboard out four Wastelands against Miracles. Like, that was just something that if no one had ever told me they did that, Mm. I don't know if I would have put together on my own. Just, like, sideboard out four lands, for four cards with text on them. Because Wasteland wasn't very good against them. So, that's another thing. Just, like, small upgrades here or there. Like, sometimes siding out Lightning Bolt might not be intuitive. When every card in your deck is good, you have to find those slots somewhere.
0: Yeah. Uh, wasteland in certain matchups is the closest thing to a dead card in Rogdelver. Uh, or any Wasteland deck, really. Um, I, I've certainly cut Wastelands from my deck, sometimes all four, sometimes two or three. Like turning what is essentially Waste into Red Blast is pretty dope in a lot of matchups.
1: Uh, those that exist now do play three drops. So boarding down to. 14, 15 lands can be a little bit sketchy sometimes if you're planning on casting Oko. If you're boarding out Oko, then it's a lot more reasonable.
2: Yeah, I was basically going to say something along the same lines. If you can use the colorless mana, then Wasteland is not a dead card. Or if you're going to encounter things like Thalia or Thorn of Amethyst that require you have extra mana, the Wastelands are certainly fine. But if you're looking to cast like Brainstorm, Lightning Bolt, Ponder, Delver, the, your colorless mana doesn't do a lot there. I think it's harder to board down wasteland now than it used to be because like you have Arcanist, you have Tarmogoyf, you have Oko, like there's more colorless pips than there used to be. Yes. But yeah, it's still viable,
0: I think. Yeah, the the average CMC of the deck has increased substantially since the uh Deathrite Delver days and obviously Deathrite shaman being a, a birds of paradise functionally changes that math too. But you can certainly shave a Wasteland or two for spells uh, against decks with tons of basics, even today.
1: In their showcase challenge this weekend, my opponent tapped one in a red playing Delver. My heart skipped for a second. I was like, oh man, this Dreadhorde's going to be tough. They played Young Pyromancer. I had the biggest sigh of relief. I was like, oh they're playing 2017 Delver.
0: Yeah, uh, it it is weird how... uh, nice it is when your opponent casts Young peasy instead of any other option. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen. Uh,
2: so as far as sideboarding goes, a, a lot of times fundamentally when I'm building a sideboard, I have very specific things that I want to improve in a post-sideboard matchup, with one of the most classic examples being graveyard-based combo. That's something that tends to beat a lot of decks in game one, so you really want to have a game two and three planned for it. So a lot of sideboards start with very specific targeted hate for one or two matchups that are super problematic.
0: Yep, and like you were saying in our intro, uh, I, I used elves as my example in our notes here, but you're doing the same thing with death and taxes. Like, if your main deck can beat, uh, like, uh, aggro range, and control, and you just have a hole for combo, you don't need to just slightly upgrade seven cards in your deck. You just need hammers to shut the door on combo. Like uh, the elves sideboards. Uh, Julian Nab is excellent at this, where he, he thinks he's going to beat all the other fair decks, and he's probably right. Uh, there's ways to outplay them. There's ways to outmuscle them. It's just, I need to be alive long enough to do that. So you'll see Julian's elf sideboard is just like four ley line, four thoughts east, two mind break trap. Let's dance. And that is certainly a way to approach uh, those sort of matchups.
1: So I will say this. Sometimes people get a little bit too caught up in the, I'm going to pick a target. For example, the reign of Black Red Reanimator, uh, when, when Eric Landon was crushing leagues, A lot of Storm players found themselves in a sticky situation because Eric convinced a lot of other people to play Black Red Reanimator, and Storm traditionally has a very tough time with that deck. The issue is that Storm can add four cards to their board, and the matchup doesn't get much better. Like, you might go from 25 or 30% up to 35 or 40%, but you're still in a losing situation. And something that I've learned to do is if the matchup's so bad, that playing four cards in your board doesn't really improve it, then pretend it doesn't exist. Like, sometimes you'll get paired against it, and that'll suck. But a lot of the times you're just better with four other cards in your board that can actually help improve matchups that are a lot closer in that spectrum. Like, hey, you might be 55% or whatever, but you can push it up to 65. That's huge. But 30 to 35%, who cares? Like, you're not going to... See the real value in that.
2: Yeah, the... yeah. I was going to... Go ahead, Phil. I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but I, I feel the same thing playing Death and Taxes all the time. Like, I see all of these people going like, yeah, I need to have these in my sideboard for elves, and I'm just, like, fucking laughing at them. Uh, there was a, a, a screenshot I posted somewhere recently where I lost a game playing Black, White, Death and Taxes versus elves, where I had a Plague Engineer in elves and an active Jitte, and I still lost like, some matchups are so abysmal that just trying to dodge is perfectly acceptable. Spend your slots elsewhere.
0: Yeah, uh, that's definitely true. Uh, these targeted sideboards, they should only be really used when you're going to beat everything else anyway. Um, like, uh, Elves or d really want to shut down that combo. Um, long ago, this is a way throwback, when we had Mystical Tutor still, and they had just... Unbanded Tomb. Re- Blue Black Reanimator was really tier, like S tier, and everything else was tier under zero for a while. And I built my sideboard for the mirror and nothing else. And, like, <laughs> there, that's if you don't play the mirror, you're going to look real dumb. <laughs> but that was a time where you could reasonably expect to play the mirror three or four times in nine rounds. And, uh, I beat plenty of opponents with Nether Spirit. You just entomb that instead of uh, Iona or whatever, and they don't fight over it, and then it comes into play, and then you they're just dead in ten turns, because nobody else can resolve a spell. And that's just like how that worked. Uh, but I'm never boarding a Nether Spirit against anything else, and like uh, Phil said, like you, you, how often are you going to bring in your holy lights out of death and taxes to like Wrath the Elves player. Elves, which is also a pretty rare deck. So, you need to use your slots judiciously. Like, I I wouldn't fuck around with Elves hate if I'm on death and taxes. Uh, That's uh, it's not the best way to build a sideboard, and you probably want to be closer to that Delver style uh, overlapping utility sideboard.
2: The more narrow your hate card is, the fewer matchups you get to bring it in. So if you have some matchup that's really bad, but the card you need to play to make it better is only for that matchup and it doesn't overlap elsewhere, it's actually pretty dicey to use your slots in that way. Whereas if your, your hate card you're using to target people is something like Leyline of the Void, where that can come in versus all sorts of different graveyard-based decks, that's a different story.
1: And if you're going to play a hammer, make sure it closes the door. Because if you're bringing, I'm going to use air quotes here, a hammer that's more like a pinch, don't bother. So like Holy Lady and elves, sure, it might kill their symbiote and like a heritage druid. But if they're playing Reclaimers, that's not killing Reclaimer. Like a number of the elves now have a two-butt. Like at least in my experience that like they're not all one-ones. Like Plague Engineer isn't necessarily the end. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Plague engineer is a little harder than holy light, but you know what I mean.
2: Yep. that's exactly what happened when I was playing against Elves recently. I plague engineered them. They kept a creature or two alive, and then they just cast Natural Order, and I died to Progenitus.
0: <laughs> yep, uh, that that is how it be sometimes. And speaking of holy light compared to plague engineer, not that I need to convince anyone that plague engineer is a viable Legacy card to play, but like. That card, compared to Engineered Plague, just like a 2 2 body with Death Touch. Like, I bring that in against Eldrazi. I bring it in against, uh, like, Rug Delver. I mean, Rug Delver has X 1s in it, but it also can just trade off with a Tarmagoy for a Hooter. Like, the, there's a lot going on there. Like, that is a banger of a card compared to something like Engineered Plague, which you're not going to bring in against Rug Delver, even if you have
1: it. I just love that you called it a Hooter.
0: Maybe shouting hooty who.
1: Maybe that's something I should have done. Uh, when I got paired against Ruggis, no I did not cyborg and plague engineer. I didn't. Even, that wasn't even on my radar. But I have thought a few times in the past. Like, did that card really need death touch? No, no, no it didn't. no, it didn't need death
0: touch, and it didn't need to be asymmetrical either. <laughs> they they pushed that twice. They just like it, it was printed as a five, and then somebody pushed it up to six, and then someone cranked it up to nine.
2: I think they went to full-on, like, this is Spinal Tap 11 with that card. like.
0: Sometimes you just have to sell packs. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you seen the other cards in Modern Horizons? If you want to call something an 11, let's talk about Hogak. Let's talk about Urza. Like, I, I think... Ren. Yeah, Ren and Six. Like, I think Plague Engineer is a safe 8 or 9.
2: Isn't Plague Engineer, like, the fifth most played creature in Legacy right now? Probably. It's Bananas.
0: Because... Ice Fangs in that set. And, and that's because like it fits into what we're talking about here, of this just checks several boxes a little bit while being a hammer sometimes. like this, That is an excellent legacy overlapping utility card.
2: Yeah, also in the Delver matchup, you get to put it on Wizard and it kills unflipped Delvers and also stops Dreadhorde Arcanist from flashing stuff back from the graveyard. Yep. It, it's hot. Highly recommend doing that. Yeah,
0: I board in as many as I have against Rugged Elver in whatever deck I'm playing. Like, uh, I, I've I've played like up to three in a list, and they're all in the in the sixty post board against.
1: If I'm ever drunk enough to play Snow again, I'll remember that.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely worth doing. All right, so all right, all right so we're, we'll next <laughs> we all agree. It's time to move on. All right, all right, <laughs> so. The next thing about building a sideboard, we've talked about like what kind of cards you could have it like, like broad strokes, macro level, like, do you want utility cards or do you want to target something? And you, a big part of figuring out that is to look at your main deck. Uh, Like it's easy to just like disregard your main deck. This is a, a deck building mistake I've made before. It's like, okay, the main deck's locked in. Let's figure out the sideboard now. But the main deck needs to be involved in your conversation about the sideboard. Uh, so like specifically i brought this up earlier like miracles like so you have four swords to plowshares uh and like two supreme verdicts or whatever in your main deck but you're gonna play control mirrors sometimes and that's six dead cards like maybe you leave in a supreme verdict in case they sneak a mentor through like maybe that's a decision you make but in general those are not cards you want in a control mirror so you need six cards to bring in Like, if you go to sideboard and you just cut all your removal, you're like, these are out, and then you have, like, three red blasts and a fluster storm, and then just two more empty slots, and you just have to put something in. That's something you could have planned for in deck build.
2: This is really important, too, because when your cards are bad, they are often very bad. So when you play a Chalice Mirror... You do not want to keep your chalices in for the post-sideboard games in just about any scenario. Or same with your your trinospheres or maybe like your blood moons in a red prison mirror. Like, you need to make sure you can get the really bad cards out.
0: Yeah, your Thalia's in a Thalia mirror. (laughs) Like, those sort of, or at least like reduce the number. Like, you don't need four copies of a legend that's not actually doing anything. When your opponent
2: is playing Caracas. Yes. And when you're also boarding in non-creature spells. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like, that sort of thing you got to think about. Um, uh, And the flip side of that is, like, uh, Phil, like, I'm going to play 11 cards for combo. Like, you better map out that you have 11 cards to cut, too. Uh, Because if you're at the point where you're, like, starting to cut cards that are fine, like, then are you actually using those slots as well as you could? Uh, what? how much better is what you're bringing in than what you're bringing out?
1: This is what I spend probably the most time with deck building on. And people are like, oh, well, you're losing a mind break. Why don't you uh, play Pyroblast in your sideboard? Well, I'm already bringing in Abrupt Decays and Carpet of Flowers. Carpets are almost mandatory at this point to deal with Rugged Elber. So I am now hypothetically boarding in eight cards against blue decks. I don't have eight cards to take out. Like, you can take out four Rite of Flames, and then usually one of each Mox, but after that, those are the standard six. If you take out one more of each Mox, you're down to two Mox, and when your Ad Nauseam Resolves, you're just going to be taking 35. Like, you can't afford to take out all your zeros and all your mana and expect to win the game, because there's a synergy that happens, or I shouldn't say a synergy, uh, a balance that happens between game one and game two, and you still need your deck to function, like something that isn't discussed enough is over sideboarding. And that's something that isn't in the show notes today, but I would like to call out. And you can definitely go too hard. Like Phil might be bringing in 11 cards, but it might make the deck actually worse. Like you can have 11 hammers in your deck, but if your deck doesn't function the way it should, it's just going to crumble at some point.
0: Yeah, Sam Black, uh, a long time ago in an article I, I read back in ancient times, uh, he reminded you reminded the reader of this article that you're presenting a deck in game 2 and 3 the same way you are in game 1 so if you're sideboarding in a way that makes your deck nonsense on paper like would you if if this was a game 1 deck if you were at home building a deck and you wrote down this deck list would you be proud of the synergy coherence like is there a plan does this make any sense and you have to keep that in mind when you're sideboarding because you are presenting a 60-card deck. And uh, a, a big thing he was pointing out specifically is when you run out of things to board out because you didn't map properly, a lot of people just start shaving their four-ofs. Like, I'll just present... I'll just cut one of each of these three four-ofs. Now I have three of each, and I got a little bit of everything going on. This is going to be great. But if you were building a deck... How, what would have to happen in your testing and tuning process where you present that you register three of all your best cards? So like that is a symbol of a undeveloped plan if you're just shaving four-ups to make room for sideboard cards.
2: It's really scary when you're playing synergy-based decks, too. Um, so consider any Aether Vial deck, right? If you fall below a certain threshold of creatures like, let's say, 20 creatures, then your ether Vials aren't really doing as much as they normally would do. And if you make your best card not good anymore, what have you done to your deck? Or if you're supposed to be this, like, human tribal deck that focuses on synergies around playing multiple creatures, if your opening hand now has an average of one creature instead of, like, five, again, what have you done to yourself?
1: That was a big problem in Standard with Collected Company. People would board in... More expensive creatures or planeswalkers, and then the collected companies would get worse, and people would complain that their company only hit one creature. It's like, well, yeah, you boarded into an Eldrazi package, like, what did you expect? Or you boarded into a Tarka or, you know, Gideon. Like, there is a balance to your deck that you just have to keep in mind. Yeah,
0: you need to channel your inner Frank Karsten when you start thinking about this stuff. Like, when you shave a creature, there's one less creature in your deck. What does that do to all your cards Magic to support creatures? This is a real thought process.
2: And what does it do to your ability to actually win the game if you're planning on winning via threats?
0: Yeah, many times. Like, I'm sure Bryant has more stories about this than I do. But, like, if somebody boards into just, like, they curve, like, Deafening Silence into Chalice on one, into Tritisphere, and then don't do anything for six turns because they can't close anymore, like... The combo deck's gonna wiggle out of that. Like they'll find a they'll find a path. Can confirm,
2: have been on that <laughs> side of the equation yep. so many times.
1: So to go back to mapping it out a little bit, sometimes you don't necessarily need to have a perfect map. I spend so much time thinking about this. Like it's a little space brain. how much time I spend thinking about like the ins and outs of the epic storm and traditionally you have four Veil of Summer and two defense grid with modern list. so that means that you have six cuts to make in a lot of matchups. So you have two Abrupt Decay and two Chain that can come in against almost any deck in the format. But then you have two other slots. And like sometimes it's like the Cyborg Thoughtseize, or previously before Peer of the Abyss, it was the Infernal Tutor. But now, like sometimes you have five. So against a death like de- Death and Taxes, you don't really have six cards to bring in. You have five. Is that an issue? According to my spreadsheet, Death and Taxes is a 75% win rate. Do I really need to have a perfect in and out for a 75% deck? Or can I accept time, sometimes drawing the one of veil of Summer? Or if you're expecting Mind Breaks, Defense Grid. I actually leave in Defense Grid way more than I used to. So now I'm actually like boarding out a real card because I'll be leaving in my... The list I'm currently playing as three Defense Grids for Mind Breaks. So now I'm bringing in two Abrupt Decay and two Chain of Vapor. I'm like, I don't want to board anything else out. So sometimes I'm like, do I want to shave one of the the defense grids even though I'm not trying to lose the mind break trap? Or do I board out a ponder or a chrome mox or whatever it is? So you have to adjust your game plans based on for what your opponents are doing to you. But also, like, it's okay to not have the perfect in and out.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a lot like what we were saying uh, that in the last section where it's like, uh, we were said it from the other side. It's like, if you're Death and Taxes and you're, like, 20% against Elves, are you going to yeet a bunch of sideboard cards into the Abyss to not play against Elves and lose to them anyway? Uh, like, if you're 80% against the deck, are you really going to stretch your brain to make your sideboard perfect against them? Yeah, you're probably fine. The The mapping is, like, obnoxiously prevalent in Vintage. Uh, just to... Really hammer this point. The vintage blue decks, they pretty much have to main deck Mental Misstep, some number of Red Blast, Fluster Storm, just cards that are stone dead against Mishra's Workshop and pretty bad against Dredge. So uh, you can't have cards that are stone dead in those matchups because you're going to play against them. So if you end up with like six total copies of like Red Blast, Mental Misstep, Fluster Storm, you need six cards that are good against shops to come in in those spots and you need 6 cards that are good against dredge to come in in those spots too so your sideboard pre-builds itself, 12 of those cards are already locked in, 6 for shops, 6 for dredge because those 6 cards have to come out it is not an option so uh, that's that's an extreme case but I think it really illustrates this point
1: I agree 100% on that
0: also like we've used this term mapping
2: it out And when we say this, we really mean sitting down and spending time not playing Magic, but, like, thinking out, writing out, typing out how you are going to board. Make sure it works. Like, look at how often those cards are coming in. If you have a card in your sideboard that you want, but of the top ten matchups in Legacy or something like that, it's coming in once, maybe you reconsider that. Like, any time before I go to a major event where things truly matter, I sit down and I spend an hour typing out a sideboard map, make sure that it works, and it also lets you relax a little bit on game day. Like, when you're in round 15 of a 15-round event, and you're tired, you haven't eaten enough, and you get paired against Eldrazi, you can do some dumb shit. Like, I don't know what I need to board out in this matchup, and leave Mother of Runes in your deck or something like that. Like, the mental shortcut you have by doing the work ahead of time saves you so much energy.
1: It can also help with deck construction, too. So, if I'm sitting there and I go, okay, well, I have eight cards to board in against blue decks, but I'm losing to Moonstoppy a lot, and I'm playing Rugged Delver, Maybe instead of playing the second copy of Flusterstorm, I'll play a Blue Elemental Blast. Um, it counters the Red Blast. It can then kill a Chandra. This isn't the the perfect example, but sometimes you'll realize that like you just need another card to come in for a certain matchup. And instead of playing the perfect card for another matchup, you play a card that's slightly worse in both matchups, but it's flexible enough to cover both. And I feel like sometimes that's the key. And that's why Rugged works so much. Like Brian said, it's not all Haymakers, but it's a bunch of cards that are slight upgrades or are modular enough where they're applicable to more matchups.
0: Yeah. I. To, to Phil's point about this is real work, like actually mapping stuff out, uh, Rich Shea and I spent uh, about an hour and a half on the phone before Eternal Weekend last year. We both had a Google Doc up in front of us and we were on the phone just talking through what we were going to do with Rug Delver. This was when the Ren and Six Rug Delver was the obvious only deck to play. And we, we both just put serious work in. And on game day... When everyone's on Rugdelver and you've put in an hour and a half of work mapping out your sideboard and your plans, you're going to be better off than they are. Uh, likewise, what Phil said, uh, like, building your fluency of these decisions that you need to make, uh, that matters a lot, too. Uh, not only for mistakes made, like, you are going to make more mistakes if you're not fluent. That's what playtesting and thinking about it is for. But also your pace of play, uh, you could get into trouble with that, Um uh, there was once a, uh, a famous team match. Uh, Chris Stagno and Alex Bestecki were my team, and we were playing as a team, and Chris made his opponent cry, like actual tears, because uh, Chris was on blue-white control, the opponent was on elves in Modern, and the opponent was eating up way more of the clock than Chris, and Chris was playing crisply, he was just playing a deck that takes a while to win, and like 30 minutes into the match, he called a judge to watch for slow play. And at the end of the match, the opponent was like tears in their eyes. Were like, just so you know, I was not slow playing. I have just never seen this matchup before and needed to figure out what to do. (laughs) Like, yeah. And thus playing too slow. Like, that's the sort of thing where it's like uh, you are hurting yourself in a variety of vectors in the tournament by not doing this work before you get there.
2: And it's only really tough the first time you do it. Like, the first time you sit down to really map out a sideboard and you haven't done it before, it is going to take you a while. Like, it might require you physically moving your cards around, trying to, like, imagine the in-outs. But once you've done it a handful of times, it just ends up being kind of cathartic and a really good experience and... It, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't just feel like you're typing away in an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. It feels like you're actually figuring stuff out. So don't get discouraged if you try it once and you're like, man, this sucks and it takes forever.
0: Yeah, if you watch my videos, like most of my videos, I'm playing the deck for the first time. I just saw a spicy list and wanted to record a league for it. And you can tell compared to like when I play some blue based Monastery Mentor deck. Like I'm just throwing cards in and out of the sideboard. It it's like, and I can explain why I'm boarding the way I am instead of spending all the time thinking about how I should sideboard. Like you can tell the the quality of my play, the quality of my content. Uh, like, like I'll, I, in my like Maverick League I played last week. It, I'm sure there was at least one where I was like, oh shit, Thali is still in my deck. Like that's the sort of thing that's not going to happen if you just get your reps in and put a little thought in beforehand
2: oh god, I didn't bring in an answer to blah thing that is currently beating me.
0: Uh, yes, um, in my my modern Death and Taxes League that I recorded, I my opponent had a turn to Torpor Orb, and I was stone fucking dead. Zero outs to that card, except just beating them in combat with my 1-1 creatures. <laughs> so uh, that's the sort of thing that would be better if you had just a little bit of thought.
2: All right. Do we have anything else to say for uh, our section two here, mapping it out?
0: Now let's keep it rolling.
2: All right. So our next section is, uh, is titled Going with the Flow.
0: Yeah, this this one is a big one for me. Um, it, another thing you'll notice in my content, uh, if you watch my videos, I try to talk through everything that's going through my head in sideboarding. You'll see cards go in, out, in, out, back around, like, in, until I settle on something. And then I'll do something totally different for game three based on what I saw in game two. Uh, Or, or if my understanding of the matchup has developed over the course of game two, going into game three, Uh, a lot of people like content these days, sideboard guides, that's the money. Like if you have a Patreon that produces good sideboard guides before the, that week's star city open, you're going to have, you're going to make some money. Like that's what people want. And it's important to remember that a sideboard guide is not a law. It is not always true. Even the people producing the sideboard guides say, like, these are just general thoughts. Like, preach. Use your brain. Really, all a sideboard guide actually is is insight into how that writer approaches their matchups, and that is valuable insight. Don't get me wrong. I love sideboard guides. Like they they shortcut a lot of the work for me. Uh, but you have to reverse engineer the sideboard guide to figure out okay, why do they want it this way? Not just accept that, okay, yeah, this is what I do. Because you might disagree. You might see something that uh, changes the 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 metrics uh, and like, oh, I see why they thought this, but seeing what I did, that's not true anymore. And so let's talk about uh, one of the most obvious, like going with the flows, which is play versus draw. Um a lot of decks, especially blue decks, uh, care a lot if they're on the play or draw on what cards they have in. Um, sticking with the uh, Rug Delver, because it's so popular these days, Force of Will versus Daze on the play and draw. Um, this this is a big one. Um, so if you're on the play, Daze is a card neutral counterspell, and you should be ahead on mana to be able to cast it. If you're on the draw, you're up a card. So if you force of will, if you lose a card to force of will, now you're at parity. If you force of will on the play, you're down down two cards because they drew a card and you pitched one. So the, the shift just on play draw for force of will is enormous. And on the other side, if you have days on the draw, they're up a land already. You day something, you're down two lands. Is what you dazed worth being back two lands in a game of Legacy, which is frequently decided with two lands in play. So you really, really have to think about those things. And additionally important, that is not to say cut days on the draw, cut force on the play, because there's probably some number of reasons to have a mix of both. Uh, I will rarely cut all of one in when i'm playing a delver deck i usually have four or five total between the two cards and good luck guessing which one because i'm constantly
1: changing it and that's part of the plan too yeah, that's what i did when i played Krug delver a couple weeks ago as well uh there's two points that you made that i would like to rewind to before you talked about uh days the first being that th- it is a guide not a law in a lot of my videos like you I create YouTube content. I will get comments that say, well, your cyborg guide says in this matchup you do this, but you did this. Explain why. And it's like, well, I saw this in this in game two. My plan doesn't account for that, so I need to adjust in order to beat that card. Or I know that this person might not be playing Null in their board. I don't need to bring in Abrupt Decay. Like, sometimes you just have information that isn't that normally wouldn't be known so you don't have to play and that's a big difference between online and paper online almost everyone googles your decklist or at least attempts to uh, sometimes they won't but like a large majority of people are on google looking up your most recent decklist especially in challenges so that's one thing and the other thing is with cyborg guides like brian said I've tried it a number of different ways, and now I just do all of them to make everyone happy. But for a long time, I would write down all of my reasoning for what I would do, but I didn't do a plus-minus at the end. And people would be like, how do you sideboard for this matchup? And I'd link them to the page. like, just tell me a plus-minus already. Like, they had no interest in knowing why I did it. They just wanted to know plus-minuses. So I did a sheet that was just plus-minuses, and people, some people, like 25% of people, are like, well, I like knowing the thought process. So now I do both. But for a long time, people were just like get really angry, like, just tell me exactly what to do already.
2: I, I think it's really important to understand the reasoning because uh, being honest, I think most sideboard guides are outdated by the time they reach the reader. Like Magic Online in particular moves so quickly that like I know when I'm playing a deck like Death and Taxes, I will adjust a card or two just about every week. And if I were to go and write an article on sideboarding now, next month my deck list might be a handful of cards different, and those cards, those couple of cards changes might actually impact what I'm bringing in and out for matchups. So, back when I was actually writing articles regularly for Thraben University, I would always do matchup approaches and never, ever, ever write in-out numbers, but I did said, right, you're looking to board out these kind of cards or these kind of cards.
0: Yeah, that's a very teacherly way to approach that. Uh, the it This is the uh, give someone a fish versus teach them to fish uh, thought process. But the twist is you're not even necessarily giving them a fish if you give them numbers. If they don't know what to do with those numbers, then uh, you've given, given them a fish skeleton. <laughs> there might be some meat on it, which is probably not what they wanted to eat. So, another play draw thing very recently, this is a quick example. Uh, in my Elves League, I recorded, um, I played an Elves Mirror, which is a-, a shit show. It's basically just a pedal to the metal who's going to get this done first. And I won game one. And then in game two, uh, the sideboard had four Thoughtseize, three Abrupt Decay in it as cards I could bring in. Um, and I determined that there's not going to be time for an Abrupt Decay, so I just cut that. Even though, like, conventional wisdom might dictate, like, I want my removal against elves. Like, not if it costs twice as much as the elf itself. So, it, while I need to be developing my own combo, like, nope. So, Abrupt Decay was just off the table for me. And then Thought Seize, it was like, do I want to react, or do I just want to go fast? So, I had the Thought in on the draw, where I would have an extra opportunity to react. And then I cut them and just presented my main 60 again when I was on the play. And just, I'm not going to try to react. I'm just going to go fast. And I ended up winning the match uh, following that plan. Uh, I did lose game two. Thoughtsies wasn't enough. And then, uh, you know, fuck it for game three. Let's just go. And I, I think that is the right approach to that matchup. Like sometimes the sideboard is just decorative.
1: I did something very similar a long time ago, Brian. Back during the Probe Era, uh, when I was playing the Epic Storm, on the draw, I would board out 4 Ponder for 4 answers against Death and Taxes, but on the play, I would present my main, because on the draw, I felt like I needed to have answers in case I couldn't win on turn 1, but on the play, they have to live for 2 turns before they get to play their card that matters, so why wouldn't I just present the best 60 I can?
0: Exactly, yep.
2: Uh, On a slightly different note, you don't always play the matchup the same way against two different players. Um, very obviously, sometimes there's a skill gap, and you can identify that. And a lot of times, I will board differently versus a weak player versus a strong player. Definitely. Uh, so let's take something like the death and taxes mirror. If a game goes long... I'm betting that I will win the death and taxes mirror most of the time, because I will have the opportunity to make lots of micro decisions that matter. And when I identify that my opponent is not a strong player, or they don't know the mirror very well, a lot of times I will just board in a way that makes me less likely to die in the first couple of turns. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop my opponent from connecting with an early jite maybe by, like, boarding in swords to plowshares or something like that, so they can't just like go, like, creature equipped swing... And then I'll let the rest of my cards ride me to victory as the
0: game goes long. Right. So the, the next thing I was going to talk about, which you've led into here, is what if your opponent is off the conventional path? Like, you have your sideboard guide you paid for off someone's Patreon. You know what they're going to do, and you're going to react to it. What if they didn't do that? And maybe it's because they are a weaker player. Maybe it's because they're a much stronger player. Maybe they're just leveling you in some way. Um, I think I've told this story on the cast before, but uh, one time I was playing. The one time I played Death and Taxes in a tournament, I played against my friend on Rugged Delver and I was like, okay, I, I this is what I'm for. Like this is what my deck is for to to beat on. And in our game three, he cast three Force of Wills on three key spells, and the conventional wisdom at the time was you board out Force of Will against Death and Taxes. Which is not conventional wisdom anymore. I, I think that is wrong. I think he was ahead of his time. But afterwards, I was like, what are you doing with all those forces in your deck? Like, and he was like, if your spells resolved, I would have lost. <laughs> and he was right. So uh, I did not expect him to have a deck full of Force of Wills. I just assumed all my spells would resolve. And I lost as a result. I just always led on my best spell because it's going to resolve. Like, I n- never tried to bait anything. I never tried to adjust my play. I didn't change my sideboard. So, like, that sort of thing, uh, you gotta watch out for that. Like, if he had Force a Willed me twice in game two, I would have been thinking about it for game three. And you gotta watch out for that.
1: I have a friend that he's a very intelligent person, but he has a very tough time beating less skilled players. Like, he can outthink you or at least know your thought process and plan for what you're going to do. But it's like, uh, the Joker versus Batman. Like, if you don't know what your opponent's thinking or what they're going to do, you're just playing catch-up the entire time. And he thinks that way sometimes where he'll beat everyone that's very good. But, like, bad players regularly beat this person just because he can't uh, see or approach the matchup at the way that they think. And it's, like, kind of funny. This guy's been on the Pro Tour multiple times, but he goes to FNM and just 0-4 is 1-3. He's, like, cannot do it. So... Sometimes people just have these weird skill gaps too where they can think a good player does this, I should prepare for this, but they just can't comprehend how to adapt on the fly when somebody doesn't agree to play by those rules. And it's a really good skill to have.
0: Yep. Uh, And in Legacy, uh, even assuming a uh, reasonable skill uh, gap or like comparable skill level, they could have a weird deck that you didn't plan for. It's like who has like blue red painter on their their spreadsheet on their sideboard guide anymore but uh, someone could play it and you need to know how to read on the fly what the matchup is about and how to upgrade your deck when you go to the sideboard
2: yeah on that note when you're writing a sideboard guide you're making the guidelines for the most popular decks but a lot of times that gives you like heuristics that you can follow for the less popular decks if you have a sideboard guide written that covers one or two Chalice decks and then you run into Curse Stompy or something like that, you can kind of take a little bit from Column A and apply it relatively well to a new matchup.
0: Yeah, I, I played at uh, Star City States or Regionals or something. It was modern uh, back when there were tournaments. And uh, in the last round, I was playing against some like mid-range rug Ren and Six value deck. And I pulled out my sideboard guide, like, I had scribbled notes on uh, between game one and two. And he was like, you have my deck on there? And I was like, no, but I'm hybridizing Jund and Urza uh, and coming up with a plan. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's really smart. (laughs) So, like, uh, that does help you shortcut if you can process new information on the fly.
2: And you have to be able to do that because a lot of times... Your, your opponent has, like, a sneaky sideboard card that can ruin you. So sometimes this happens at the local level. I, I had been winning just about every local event, and these guys were coming in from Tennessee, and one of them shows up, looks at me, I see him get out his binder and sleeve up three cards and shove them into his sideboard. And he's like, don't worry, I'm ready for you this time. And he was playing Shardless Bug with three copies of Dread of Night, specifically for me.
0: Yep, that's the the Steve Rubin effect here in Pittsburgh. You walk into the Vintage Tournament, if Steve Rubin is there, you put Dredge Hate in your sideboard. If he's not, you can cut it for the day, because he's the only one who
1: owns bazaars. I've never dealt with that in my entire life, (laughs) though. I didn't think (laughs) so. Please tell me what it's like.
2: Yeah, but but more generally, when you have something like Clothis to deal with out of a sideboard, or someone's playing something crazy like a tomb stalker. You you want to have the the flexibility to go and answer some of these these things that you might not used to be expecting, but you want to be able to adapt to your opponent's haymakers. If your opponent has like monastery mentors post sideboard in their tin fins deck, you you, you want to have a plan for that sort of stuff. You don't want to get juked by a good sideboard plan.
0: Yep. And then likewise flip that how did they sideboard for you? Like, if you if they brought in three rel- Red Elemental Blasts, can you sideboard out some of your Okos and get those Mentors back into the deck? Like, get off blue cards. Uh, maybe Jace the Mind Sculptor, <laughs> RIP, barely present in Legacy anymore at all anyway, but some control decks play one. Like, get Jace out of your deck if you f- see that second or third Red. Like, that's just not going to be a plan. Uh, so... Uh, reacting to that sort of thing, uh, I had a sick, sick, sick—if I do say so myself—game on my my Elves League that I that's live. Um, my opponent flipped Delver, revealing Submerge. I had them choked, so they had no mana. But they flipped their Delver, revealing Submerge, and I used Quarian Ranger to bounce my only Forest before they drew the Submerge, and then I just never played a Forest the rest of the game, and just beat them down with my Very green creatures. Nice. Yeah, and like that's the sort of reacting to what they're doing uh like i could get time walked like full time walked by getting submerged or i could send myself back to land and just keep playing and that was an easy decision to make Once once you take the second to consider that it's available to you
1: all right should we move into the last section of the the episode oh
0: i i I, sorry i have one more thing i want to say before i move on Uh, i feel like this one is important and we didn't really touch it you should be going back into your sideboard after game two and before game three, at least to consciously reconsider your options. Uh, If you look at all 15 of those cards and decide you still have the best deck to present, that's fine, present it. But when I see my opponent between game two and three just shuffle and present, they don't even reach for their deck box. uh, I just feel like I have an advantage as a player against that person. Maybe Maybe they know. Maybe they're just like, I'm on Eldrazi. It's not getting any better than this. Here we are. But uh, you should be looking uh, and at least reconsidering what you saw in that game.
1: At Star City Opens, uh, granted, I haven't played any since the deck was changed, but I would swap empty the Warrens between the main deck and the sideboard in between games. Like, I would just switch the two empties. That way, at least they think I changed how I boarded.
0: I do that all the time. So, uh, like... Like you said, uh, Wasteland is a card I frequently shave one of. Force of Will, I'll usually like cut two of them in a fair matchup. And I'll just go to my sideboard and very obviously like pull out the, the two Force of Wills in a Wasteland and switch them for the two Force of Wills and Wasteland on my sideboard and then shuffle those three cards in. Like I'll make it clear that so- the cards have changed. Uh, and at least do that. Like Give your opponent something to think about. And that sort of thing doesn't just apply to sideboarding either. It often
2: applies to searching your library. So using Death and Taxes as an example, Death and Taxes traditionally has three pieces of equipment. If I have two of them in my hand and I'm about to search my library for the last one and my opponent doesn't know I have the other two, I will pull out two cards, look at them for a minute, and then pick one. Like, you can do these little, like, micro-bluffs, that add a lot and give your opponents more things to think about or feed them misinformation. Just, like, tiny, tiny edges. Be thinking about that stuff.
0: Yep. Another thing, since we're talking about this, uh, that a lot of people do, is they'll brainstorm, put a land on top, fetch, and just flip that land into play from the top of their deck. And that tells me you brainstormed a land away. Like, I, I know that you're not hurting for mana. So, like, just pick up your deck... Find a different copy of that land or, you know, move it around, put it into play. Don't give up those little things for free. All
2: right, but back to the main idea of sideboarding. Um, Transformational sideboards is something that a lot of people try out, but often is not successful in the long term. In the short term, when a deck has a transitional sideboard and you're one of the people who is like on the cutting edge of that technology, you you will get people. You see the Doomsday decks that are transforming into kind of a Miracles deck with a bunch of mentors. You see combo decks transforming into control decks or stompy decks. You see the random, like, World Warrior Dragon reanimate deck that goes into being a, a control deck. There are all sorts of ways that you can play these transformational sideboard things that are all about juking your opponent and making sure that they have the wrong cards in against you.
0: Yeah, so uh, going back to Spinal Tap, this is cranking sideboarding up to 11. The uh, like the, We were talking about like the little jukes, like switch your Okos for mentors to play around Red Blast, but this is like the full uh, I beat you with Worldgorger Dragon combo game 1. Now I'm just bug Leovold with Oko. The whole combos in the sideboard, nice graveyard hate. Good luck. Like th- this is, this is so gorgeous when it works, uh, ex- pun intended, <laughs> and it's so embarrassing when it doesn't. Um, but it takes a big brain to develop these sort of decks to see those sort of patterns, and also a big brain to play them. the The Doomsday build that boarded into miracles, I put that together on magic online went to record a league with it and then just didn't <laughs> and i was like i absolutely cannot figure this deck out on the play or on on the on the fly while i'm recording like i would probably want like 20 matches in before i let anyone see me trying this and uh, like that that sort of thing it it's big risk big reward and it's hard to do correctly
1: so one of the benefits of doing this is that you get the Splinter Twin advantage, too. Like, if you're playing World Gorger snow Control combo in Game 1, and then board it out, Game 2 and 3, I'm going to be respecting World Gorger Dragon killing me at any moment. It is literally the Splinter Twin issue where, like, the deck is good on its own, but it also can kill you at an instant speed notice. So, your opponent will play defense when they should be playing offense as long as they think that there's a chance that it still might be in your deck that's a huge advantage
0: yep just kicking them off kilter a little bit that's usually all it takes in a game of legacy um, it legacy frequently comes down to uh, who drew a dead card and who didn't and if they still have dead cards after board you you've pulled it off
2: be very careful when you're making a transformational sideboard though make sure you transform enough if you don't transform enough and the hate cards that your opponent is bringing in still impact your transformational sideboard plan, you did not transform enough. Like you got stuck halfway between the car and the robot and you have like these awkward short arms and some tires and, and you're, you're flopping around and you're still dead.
0: Yeah, like if you sideboard out your World Gorger Dragon combo and bring in four Snapcaster Mage... That graveyard hate's still gonna wreck your new plan. Like that's not far enough. You need to be on like Oko, Leovald, Tarmogoyf, that kind of stuff.
1: So one thing that I've enjoyed about playing Paradoxical Outcome and Vintage is it's a small transformational board, but I board and Sprite Dragon a lot, especially against fair strategies. And if they're playing Stony Silence or Deafening Silence, either uh, like Stony Silence, he's playing the Jeskai control decks, and then Deafening Silence out of like the Gak decks dragon comes down and just doesn't play by those rules it's only a three of but i've changed the way that i'm going to play the game and i'm just playing by a different set of rules and if you're willing to change what matters in a match and your opponent's not ready for that it's a huge advantage
0: yeah uh my uh one of my vintage top eights at eternal weekend was with rug paradoxical outcome and there were four mana Gordra hydras in the, the list one in the main three in the board and Against the decks that we're bringing in a pile of Red Blast and Fluster storms, I just cut my POs. Like, I might have one or two in the post war deck. Uh, I'm down to one Mox Opal instead of three or four. Like, that's just not what this game's about. You better bring in Swords to Plowshares, not Stony Silence, against my combo deck. And then if I get the Juke in game two, now we're in a level game, game three, where are they going to split the difference? Are they going to assume I'm still on Gorger? Am I going to just bring in all my POs? And now now we're playing a game. Like, I love the Sprite Dragon out of current builds of P.O. Like, P.O. actually just needs a transformational sideboard because it's such a dog to the the Red Blast decks. But we don't need to get into the vintage metagame right now. But uh, I would not play Paradoxical Outcome in a tournament without the ability to transform in some way.
1: So you'll like this. I got my three Japanese foil Mana Gorger Hydras back today in the mail from getting signed.
0: I saw that, and my first thought was, he's missing one.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I love playing four hydras. All right, so let's talk about wish boards. And Ooh, I don't know anything about those.
2: No, probably not, so I guess I'll spend most of the time talking about Karn instead of talking about bad cards like Burning Wish. JK, Burning Wish is fucking scary.
0: Karn is scarier.
2: I do think Karn is scarier. In that yeah. heads-up
0: matchup, I would take Karn over Burning Wish.
2: Every time. (laughs) All right, so wish boards are really interesting because they constrain some of your sideboard space when you build them. No matter whether you're playing with like Karn, Burning Wish, Cunning Wish, uh, what is it, Glittering Wish, whatever you're doing with those cards, when you're providing yourself with these wish targets, you are cutting off the ability to play traditional sideboard cards. So a lot of times the Karn decks are playing somewhere on the order of six-ish targets, maybe seven, for Karn. And that means you don't actually have all of that many sideboard slots remaining for generic things you can bring in. A lot of Karn sideboards start with those six or seven targets, followed by four Leyline of the Void, and then you just have a couple of cards left over to work with afterwards. So it becomes very hard to board out bad cards when you have a large wishboard.
1: Phil, one of my favorite thing about the card, like, granted, fuck Karn, hate that card, Right. something that I do like about it is when the decks board into Leyline and then get Helm of Obedience with their Karn, like, it just makes me happy. Like, granted, I don't want it to happen to me ever, but who doesn't love a good, like, leyline helm combo?
2: I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't. I'm actually very anti-Helm in Karn
1: builds, Well, I'm anti you, Phil, out of my 15.
2: Yeah, I I get it. That's totally reasonable. Um, The reason why I dislike that card is most of the time there is either a cheaper or slightly more expensive card that can also win the game that isn't conditional on you playing a card that you can't cast. So versus control decks, a lot of times you can just go and get liquid metal coating, blow up their lands, and you win, and versus a lot of other decks... Karn being in play and existing just wins because it shuts off artifact mana. Or at 6 mana, you get Mycosynth Lattice, which wins the game. Or at 3 mana, you get Ensnaring Bridge, which protects Karn and effectively ends up winning the game. So I think Helm is a wasted sideboard slot in a lot of those cases.
1: Phil, we're talking about cool things right now, okay?
2: Alright, well, why don't you talk about Burning Wish then? That's the opposite of cool.
1: Wow. So many daggers this episode, Phil. We talked about death and taxes for, like, 30 minutes, and now this?
2: Look, man, you you, you brought up goblin penis, so, like, whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't see what that has to do with Burning Wish. She's a lovely genie who, her I guess she releases the genie in a bottle. That's the artwork. Just like Christina Aguilera. Anyway, so Burning Wish. Uh, a lot of people ask, like, lot, like, people will start to play the Epics Tournament, and they're like, Why don't you have a Simplifier, or Tranquility to beat enchantments? Why don't you have more answers? Like, why aren't you playing a Shattering Spree? You can't beat a Leyline with your Burning Wish. Like, you can't answer some Planeswalker. Like, why aren't you trying to beat everything? That's not the most effective use of your cards. And you really want to be able to look at each card and realize how often you're going to use this and maximize the 15 slots you have. Because with Burning Wish sideboards, you often only have seven, sometimes eight slots in your sideboard. Like, I found the sweet spot to be splitting your sideboard in half and having half Wish cards and then half cards that you can board in for real matchups. And sometimes they're both. Like, earlier I mentioned boarding in Thoughtseize. That is both a Wish card and a card you can sideboard in. And those are the best ones. If you can run, like, a Pyroclasm that you can then sideboard in against Elves or whatever, or a Grape Shot, like, that can work. But... For the most part, usually splitting it about 50-50 is the best thing that you can do. And if you're going to run a Simplify that you're only going to use once, how often are you using that? One in every 100 matchups? Is that really worth it? Or would you rather have something that you can sideboard in, like an echoing Truth, that can come in, I don't know, one in every 10 matchups? Like, how much do you value being able to answer a Ley Line versus you know, consistently using a card. And I feel like that gets lost sometimes. I think I so
2: many out. people lose that with their Karn sideboards. They, they want to get really cute, and it's like, oh man, I'm gonna run Glass Casket, or I'm gonna run Caltrops, or I'm gonna run, uh, what is it? Skyship Sovereign? Yep, the, Sky Sovereign. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that vehicle that lightning bolts something when it ETVs or attacks, and I just wonder... What percentage of the time is that actually good? Even even in a league, like what percentage of the time would you actually wish for that over your other
0: targets? Yeah, The, the Grand Prix I won with uh, Karn deck, it, it was Modern, not Legacy, but there were five unique artifacts in that sideboard. Which seems like I'm barely using Karn, but Karn was there to check specific boxes. Like He's not there to do everything. The rest of the deck can do everything else. Karn is there to keep me alive in a pinch. And suspend one, win the game if I'm ahead. That's
1: it. So, something else about Burning Wish and even Karn is sometimes people will be like, well, why aren't you playing this card? And honestly, it comes down to time a lot of times. Like, if my opponent plays a turn one Chalice of the Void and then turn two Trinisphere, I don't have to cast Burning Wish on my third turn. And then on my fourth turn, cast a spell that answers it. And on my fifth turn, try to win the game. They time walked me five times, and that's why sometimes you just don't see answers to things out of like these wish boards. Is because like the time in which you could retrieve that card, cast it, and then do something meaningful, it's a lot of time. And like realistically, you're just not going to win those games. So why bother? Uh, instead, you can approach it a little bit differently. So that's why the Epic Storm plays the card like Pulverize. Because if I have to Pulverize, I can get it on turn two against the Chalice. On turn three, float the two mana, blow up the Chalice, and all of a sudden I have two mana floating, and now this is my chance to win the game. It could be a Shattering Spree or a by Force, but then I'm forced to pass the turn. What's stopping Phil then from playing a Trinisphere or something else? Like, you really want to capitalize the time management along with these cards if you're going to bother playing them at all. And that's why you don't really see those, like, cutesy cards that these decks used to play, like... I, like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I've been going back and looking at my alternate reports and transferring them over. I had garbage cards in my sideboard like Tranquility. I ran tra- Tranquility for like two years. And then at some point I leveled up and realized that I wasn't winning as much as I could be because I was running these bad cards on my board. Uh,
2: man, I mean, that's a great point. Um, going at it from a slightly different angle, there are also times where you... You board out the Karn, and so you lose access to your wish board. Um, This is often true against something like Delver, where Karn is just a bad card because it doesn't do anything to immediately impact the board. And when that happens, you lose access to your wish board, and you often are scrambling for enough things to bring in. Um, And that's another really interesting metric about wish boards is sometimes they don't work well, or sometimes you board out some of your wish enablers.
0: Yeah, another thing that uh, comes up sometimes uh, in control decks, uh, you see a lot, like, y'all know me, uh, I put mentor in the main deck, but a lot of control decks, they have like two or three mentors in the sideboard, and main deck they're just like, 3 Terminus, 2 Supreme Verdict, uh, maybe an Entreat the Angels or 2, and an oko to win the game. Uh, And then they, once the opponent plans for that, this is that switch uh, to avoid dying to Red Blast. Like, they just cut their swords to Plowshares, bring in Monastery Mentor, and go ham. Um, And that helps... Like, Mentor is exactly the kind of card that would give Control a perfect pivot. Like against something like Death and Taxes or Maverick or something creature-based that could pinch a control deck that gives them infinite time off of all of their ways to win the game. Monastery Mentor, just jam it and go. Uh, that, that's a different sort of time management. It's like a, a pace management more than time management, where it's like you wanted to set up Thalia into Stoneforge Mystic, into Sword of Fire and Ice, and I'm attacking you for 11 in the meantime with my six creatures. So uh, that's that's another sideboard option. Um, you see uh, other things in that spot sometimes. Uh, can't think of a strong example right now, uh, but throughout history, control decks have boarded into ways to win the game faster. Um, like a Bane Slayer Angel, yeah, Bane, for example. Right. That that's the one that came to my brain as soon as I said I can't think of an answer. Like uh, standard decks uh, were are big at this. Um, pioneer decks like maybe the smaller formats you see this more prevalently like uh there was a a a standard deck a couple years ago that won with by decking your opponent with teferi five mana teferi like the only win con was teferi tucking himself so you don't deck and they do but then it boarded in a bunch of creatures just random animals to pound the opponent once they're like there are literally no creatures in this deck cut every answer and then boom get the game done
2: in Modern, I used to board in so many creatures when I was playing things like Splinter Twin or Blue White Red Control or stuff like that. I boarded like so many Karinos Storm Breath, Dragon, Thunder Hellkite, things of that nature that just like help to close out post sideboard games more quickly when time is
1: an issue. Right. Yeah. I actually did the opposite in Modern a couple of years ago. Back during twenty eighteen, I was playing a lot of Blue Red Modern Storm which, if you're unfamiliar, it runs eight enablers, it runs four Brawl, and then three to four copies of Goblin Electromancer. You play one on turn two, on turn three you play your ritual, uh, Pyretic Ritual or Desperate Ritual, and then these cards reduce the cost, which allow you to win pretty quickly. Well, in the post war games, I decided I would slow down. And this works two ways. One, I would board out all of my creatures, every single one of them, and I would decide, hey, I'm going to shut off their Path to Exiles, I'm going to shut off their bolts, because who cares if I'm getting lightning bolted, and things like fatal push so now i'm gaining virtual card advantage by my opponent drawing dead cards and me gaining you know equity but i would also then decide hey i'm going to play this game slower i'm going to board in four copies of pieces of the puzzle and i would board in empty the warrants which would make spot removal bad i'm just going to play a different game entirely and that goes back to the transformational sideboard but there's more ways of gaining an advantage other than like you don't have to be the one boarding in a bunch of creatures you can do the opposite too like as long as you have a clear coherent plan it's just a way that you can get better
0: yeah brian said something really important there which is board out all of the creatures not six of the eight all of them because if you board down to like two creatures instead of eight they're gonna have the removal spell every time like you need to overload the removal with all your creatures or just get off it entirely um there was there was a guy at my local shop for a while, uh, he's a, a rager, kind of a D-bag, and he built this like red-white prison deck, that one with Wormcoil Engine, that was the only creature in the, the main deck, and he would tilt off so hard every time you had the path to Exile. And it's like, you're playing a six-mana threat, and it is your only threat. This path has been in my hand since turn two, I'm gonna have it every time, this is a poorly constructed deck. But... Instead of hearing that and uh, adjusting his strategy, he just raged about how his opponents were all lucky. So don't be that guy uh, and understand why these sort of things are happening. And it's not an accident and it's not luck.
2: Um, Also on the topic of sideboards and kind of wishboards in particular, what is the space costing you for any given sideboard plan? Um, And I want to bring up Legion Angel again. Um, so, as a reminder, that's that 4 3 flyer that when it ETBs, you can grab another one from your sideboard. So, if you're playing that, you're probably playing one in the main deck and three in your sideboard. And this kind of becomes your plan for a lot of control matchups. Well, what is gone from your deck in order to put those three things into your sideboard?
1: I imagine you're probably losing Gideon and you're probably losing Cataclysm. Yep.
2: That's that's it. And for me, I, mean, I also play death and
1: taxes and I figured that out.
2: Yeah. And I also lost a piece of equipment, I think, um, because I, w- I couldn't really run the fourth equipment in the 75 because this Legion Angel was kind of like one of the fair things that was going in. So it's not just free to include these wish boards. A lot of my more generic tools ended up falling out of the deck in order to put these in. So if you get paired against a fair matchup where Legion Angel is like kind of slow or awkward for some reason, maybe because your opponent has I don't know a bunch of flying Death Touchers or something stupid like that, all of a sudden your fair sideboard plan doesn't look good and you don't have as many generic flexible slots.
1: Throughout the course of this episode, I have figured out Phil's entire sideboard. It's eleven anti-storm cards, one Path to Exile, and three Legion Angel. You're welcome.
2: I've been ruined gotta read
1: yep phil's playing the long con though he uh put out this
0: podcast telling you all about that and he actually has none of that and you're gonna overboard for him next time you play also
2: i've played a different dnt list every time for the last eight streams that i've done (laughs) i'm i have no idea what dnt is supposed to look like right now uh but that's that's not the conversation right now
1: going back to wishboards for a second uh, so I mentioned that you usually want seven or eight cards. Like that's the sweet spot. And the best way of taking advantage of this is having your seven or eight wish cards. And then using the rest of the slots to figure out how the metagame is trying to beat you. So as a storm deck, usually it's permanence because you win the stack battle most of the time. So you want things like Abrupt Decay and then Chain of Vapor. So that's four out of your seven slots or eight slots. So... You really want cards that are widely playable and not narrow. You don't want Fatal Push. Fatal Push only answers creatures. Instead, you can run something like Chain of Vapor, which answers deafening silence and answers Leyline, of the Void and Leyline of Sanctity. Like, you can. You want to get the most use out of your cards as possible. Like, narrow cards just aren't going to get you very far. Like Dread of Night, I would never play that card because, um, if we go back to mapping, it comes in for one matchup. Like, I know Thalia sucks, but Thalia can be answered by a Chain of Vapor or an Abrupt Decay. I realize that it's not a 10 out of 10 in that matchup, but I'm not looking for a 10 out of 10. I'm looking for a solid, like, 6.5 or 7 in a bunch of matchups. That's the way that I build my wishboards most of the time. Like, right now I have the four carpets because rug Delver is just by far the best deck in the format. And sometimes you need a really big hammer, but most of the time, you know, fine with a couple wrenches.
2: Yeah, a a Sorceress Spyglass out of the Karn decks answers so much stuff. It's it's just like such a flexible, such a good card. Is it sexy? No. Is it exciting? No. But will it get the job done most of the time? Yeah, yeah, it will. You don't need to get too cute a lot of times with the wish boards. Playing good, solid stuff usually works. I see a lot of Omnitel players get real cute with some of their cunning wish targets.
0: It's the worst. (laughs) Yeah, they omniscience is a crutch like keep in mind that when you have infinite mana like functionally infinite mana it doesn't really matter what you're doing so uh they, they get to get cuter than the rest of us out here playing with normal mana with our wish boards.
1: i just love how they're like well, okay well first we'll cunning wish for uh that terrible seven mana instant that gets three more out of my deck fireminds foresight yeah and then they'll be like okay well now i'm gonna get intuition this this and then we're gonna go back and we're going to get release the ants and then i'll do this and then i'm gonna get another card on the board it's like yeah you're playing three cards to kill your opponent where you could just go play that green instant that gets your two huge creatures that allows you to time walk and draw the rest of your deck
0: yeah Shared summons. Shared summons. <laughs> it's
1: just like you could be spending three cards or you could just do the one
0: Yep, release the ants. <laughs> I, I think we're past that as a society, but some people still like it.
1: I actually deal with that quite a bit in Pioneer. I run a Fey of Wishes deck. You know, I have to run Burning Wish in every format. And right now the kill condition is two cards. It's first Enter the Infinite, and then it's Approach of the Second Son or Jace. And I've been trying to find a way to consolidate this into one card for quite some time. Like, I'll figure it out eventually. I just haven't fit, solved it yet. And if you have... Better message me.
0: Get the hive mind to work. Out yeah, that uh, burning wish in Pioneer Hive Mind.
2: All right, I, I think we have a, one more bullet point yes, left here. I,
0: I have one more bonus topic. This will not come up often, and you should, in general, push it out of your brain, but it might come up. You don't have to board exactly one for one under the current magic rules. The rules are your sideboard can be up to 15 cards and the rules are your main deck need to be at least 60 cards. Those are the deck building constraints in Constructed Magic. So you can board 65 cards and have 10 in, leave 10 in the sideboard, present a 65 card main deck. Uh, the This, I have presented 61 cards probably like 10 or 15 times in my life since this rule has changed and that's just because like I want access to all of them that that's probably a sign of a poor map or just a matchup came up that was weird and it was like I want six cards in but I only want to cut five and as long as it doesn't like bork your mana too hard uh playing 61 isn't the most embarrassing thing you could do uh where it might really come up is if you're playing at something like mill uh I played against mill uh My uh, Snoko League that I recorded, that's on my YouTube. Uh, I I lost to Mill in round one, and it was close. Like, it was very close. And I think that if I had just boarded up to 70, I would have won that game. Just uh, It would have given me an extra turn or two of actions to take before my deck ran out. Uh, I know Phil streamed Mill recently. Um, Did anyone do that against you, board up to 70 or plus?
2: No, but I can guarantee you I was thinking about it the whole time, because yeah. most of the time when I actually milled someone out, it's on narrow-ish margins.
0: Yeah, like, mill is one of those decks that if it doesn't work, you lose.
2: <laughs> like, Oh god, you lose so hard. Because
0: you have done nothing. Like, a 10-card deck compared to a 40-card deck is irrelevant if Lethal Damage is swinging in, and... Uh, just buying yourself an extra turn or two by putting 10 extra cards in your deck uh, could be the difference. Uh, I didn't think about it when I was in the match, but somebody in my comments was like, did you consider boarding in extra cards? And I was like, oh my god, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. No, I didn't consider it, but I should have. You don't I want have
1: to- boarded 61 a few times in my life. Not when playing combo, but usually limited. Well, I guess to be 41 or sometimes other decks. Because I'll be sitting there thinking as the, I watch the motoclock run out of time. And I'm like, fuck it. There's six, six seconds I'm just going to hit submit with 61 or 62 or whatever. And like it just goes.
0: Yeah. So I will say, in limited magic, present 40 cards every time, you donkey. That's a, that is a totally <laughs> different thing. So just the... The difference between Limited and Constructed is so enormous. Uh, like, every card matters so much in Limited. Uh, like, if you're between two cards, like, oh, what's my last cut? You are better off just shuffling them face down and chucking one out the window and playing the other one as a 40-card deck than playing 41. And that that is true. Uh, it, it is so much more important to draw your good cards in Limited.
1: Would this be an exception? Because uh, I've definitely done this in the past, and it could be wrong. But let's say you're playing a big, slow, like, board state. Like, they're both huge mid-range decks, and you're like, this could come down to decking.
0: Okay, there are limited formats that have existed in the past. Uh, Throne of Eldraine was one of them, where, uh, like, Throne... The black-white deck. Well, every deck. uh, Every deck had food in it, so there was just a common mechanic that involved life gain, uh, the, the board got gumped up frequently. Uh, there was a mill theme, a mill sub theme in some of the colors. And uh, it, it could be defensible if it's like, I'm on the draw, I better play 42, because it's going to come down to that. Uh, there might be specific corner cases where that is the case.
1: I drafted the mono blue mill deck and I'll drain quite a bit on Magic Online, not on Arena. And I had a number of points just straight up board up to 70. And I was like, "Oh fuck, yeah, like, this sucks." In
0: limited, uh, you have infinite basic lands available to your sideboard. Like, you could just present uh, five hundred card deck, and like, good luck milling me. Obviously, good luck me drawing any card that could win the game. But uh, if you Six can't lands also spell attack, keep, yeah, just mulligan to any spell and keep. London, baby.
3: As far as constructed goes. Presenting 61 is occasionally correct when you are a toolbox deck. So when you have something like Recruiter the Guard, Green Sun, uh, Goblin Matron, something like that, that can go and the added utility that you are getting from that one card is really worth it, and you still want to have access to all of your other effects, like that. that sort of thing is certainly defensible. If you're interested in the math behind it, I do have an article on Thraven University specifically about like playing with a sixty-one card main deck and what
0: that does to some of your numbers. Yeah, that's a super cool resource, and that's a great point. Like, you don't go up to sixty one in Rugdelver because you want the Red Blast and the Flusterstorm. Like, if if the counter spells are that important, you cut something to get down to sixty. Like the the, uh, there is a logic break between playing all of them to maximize drawing them and playing more than 60 cards. Those are mutually exclusive uh, goals. So, uh, what Phil said is an important clarification on that.
1: So, back in the early days of Legacy, like 2006 or 2007, Survival of the Fittest decks were very popular. And on MTG The Source, running 61 cards was just like the coolest thing. And there's a quote that I have never forgotten that someone wrote. And because it was just like the coolest thing back then around 61 cards. And this person said, mathematically, it always makes sense to play 61 cards. Think of it this way. It's a dog that's rolled around in its own shit. Technically it doesn't hurt the dog, but it certainly doesn't look good either. And and I've like always had that in in my mind that anyone that plays 61 cards is rolling around in their own shit. And I just don't want to be that person. Uh,
0: yeah, um, there there was a, a stretch where uh, Julian Nab built 61 card elf decks. Like, and that was just his thing for a while. I don't know if it was a meme that became real life or what, but he was on that for a while. And I just, like, considered that the smoking gun. Like, if I was at a tournament and I saw my opponent pile shuffle their deck and end up with an extra card left over, I was like, oh, they're on elves. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on sideboards, gentlemen? We've we've been pretty thorough here.
1: I would like to uh, take back the sideboard slot that I gave Phil in the beginning of this episode. He said some very hurtful things about Burning Wish and was pro-Karn, so fuck Phil. All
0: right, I'll take the slot. I'm in.
1: All
0: right. <laughs> I, I suppose the only thing we didn't talk about was the joke sideboard
3: where your deck does only one thing and you don't sideboard so you pick 15 of your best friends to put into your sideboard um, such as 15 islands or all of the different atogs or something. Of that I, I do
0: remember a tog belcher. Uh, that was a published list on Star City at one point it was just char belcher with 15 atogs in the sideboard.
1: That there was, was a was 15 great. island as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I've seen that a few times. I think it's less funny. I also just for the record since it came up I think it's stupid. Like, I I get the meme. I get the joke that, like, I'm only here to belch, baby. But, like, Red Elemental Blast, Mail of Summer, like, you should be having a sideboard with your competitive magic
1: deck. Like, stop it. One funny story before we end. I was at a Star City Games with our editor, the lovely Phil Bluckman at Force of Phil. And this is one of the reasons that no one should ever use altars, but Phil insists on it. Uh, Phil had an altar for like an umazawajite in the board of Esper Mentor. And they were like, no, we don't think the art's recognizable. Third party unbiased, it was completely fine. Like the judge was just being a jerk. So Phil, in his infinite wisdom, decided rather than try to replace the umazawajite he was just going to run a basic forest. And then the coverage team talked about what this basic forest and the sideboard of Asper Mentor could possibly be about. And then, like, you would see it on Moto Results the next week that this person copied his list and then had a basic forest in the sideboard. Instead of one of the three lanes that Phil could actually tap for colors of mana, Phil chose a forest.
0: Yeah, that's gas. Uh, <laughs> just, just like the Julian thing, like, I love a smoking gun. Or, like, I, I think... Uh, Marshall Arthur's, uh, he won a uh, a Modern Open with Mardu Pyromancer at one point, and I think he had something stupid in the deck. Like, may- maybe I'm confusing my memories, because Marshall's generally pretty tight with his tuning, but uh, somebody did well with a deck with something just stupid going on, or maybe the deck was reported wrong onto the website, and you just saw it on Moto the next three days. It was like the deck just didn't have Lingering Souls in it or some some dumb thing uh like it, it was like triplicate spirits instead it's <laughs> just like that's obviously not the right card you did nothing you just copy and pasted that list you didn't think about it at all and you deserve to be punished for it is that the angry uh, rant we want to end on
1: yeah let's i think that's a good one i i don't know if i have anything else left to say other than go watch love country yep good
0: show and We'll talk about it in two weeks, I'm sure. All right.
2: Sounds good, folks. We hope you enjoyed episode 33 of the Eternal Glory podcast. If you didn't, well, you made it this far anyway. So, like, cool. And we love you. Have a great rest of the night, evening, day, whenever, wherever it is.